Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today, I'm flying solo, being the only panelist and interviewer, and we are interviewing a very interesting person. That's Ashley Davis. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Oh, thanks, Dan. It's, uh, it's really exciting to be here. First time on a podcast, so feeling slightly nervous, but keen to get into it. Well, I can appreciate. I think I told you that this time this is my first time interviewing on my own, so we can mm -hmm. both be nervous together. <laughs> and Ashley, I believe that you're coming to us from Brisbane, Australia? Yep, that's right what we call the Sunshine State in Australia. It's right on the East Coast, correct? More or less in the oh, middle. Yeah, a little, little bit above the middle on the East Coast. I think I told you before we started that I was thinking, hey, that's probably pretty close to Sydney, Australia, <laughs> but it turns out that it's yeah. actually Australia distances close is a relative yeah. term. I think it's what, right. what, like a 10 hour drive, something like that? Something like that. It's like nowhere in Australia is close to anywhere else, basically, except, except if, if you're in the Southeastern corner. You're about five or six hours drive, you know, from from anywhere there down there. But if you're anywhere else in Australia, in in Brisbane, in Adelaide, Darwin, or Perth, you've got a basically a you know a half a continent or a continent to cover to get anywhere. Mm. That's so kind of like the in, that's kind of like the inverse of the situation of where I'm. I am. I'm located in Israel, and here everything is packed up or close together. Mm. <laughs> so, so yeah the, the drive from tel aviv to jerusalem for example is just one hour and those mm. are the two major cities in israel i did live in the uk for about eight years so i, I know what it's like to kind of have big cities within within a train ride so it's, it's a very it's a very different environment to to live in yeah i'm sure by the way how is the COVID situation over there it's good in queensland in brisbane we've got very few have very few cases uh, we've had our borders locked down for for quite a while, quite a few months. So we've had very limited travel between states and incoming from other countries. So it's it's been kept under control pretty well. We've we've had a bit of a hot spot uh, down south in Victoria, where they've had an extended lockdown for for many months to try and get this under control. But I think I think we're very lucky in Australia, given that we've got hard borders around the country in terms of you know we're surrounded by an ocean and that we've got a, quite a, a small population compared to many other countries we've managed to keep it a lot, keep it under under control a lot better than a lot of other places so my heart goes out to everyone everyone who's suffering it's a it's a really difficult situation to be in yeah for sure good to hear that things are not so bad and even are improving over where you are and by the way i think you're also heading into springtime correct in terms of the seasons yeah, we don't really have that distinct seasons in Australia. I mean, especially up the, the north end of Australia. So it's just, it's in winter, it's a little bit cool. And in summer, it's very hot. But where the days are heating up now, but it'll be at its hottest here over Christmas and going to January. That's probably also better in terms of COVID, you know, less mm. flus and stuff like that. And the, uh, I think you call it the La Nina effect, is back again after a few years. And um, that brings with it uh, a lot of wet weather, a lot of a lot of storms. And we've really just experienced it the last couple of weeks. We've had about three, three big storms, lots of hail, lots of lightning, not in my area, but in a lot of areas around here, uh, there's been damage to houses and cars. Oh my, I think I actually saw a picture of like hail balls that were fist size or something yeah, like, right. scary like that. Wow. Yeah, that was just, just, just on the south side of Brisbane in the last couple of days, I think. Oh, that's scary. Well, anyway, enough about the weather. Let's talk about technology and programming and stuff. Uh, JavaScript yeah, yeah. Jabber, after all. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. 
And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So we were kind of talking about this before, and you said that you've had an interesting journey into tech and into JavaScript. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I've got a long history. Um, it's been over 20 years. So my, my first professional programming job was in 1997. And I had a few years before that of study and being a hobbyist coder sort of got me got me warmed up for it. Um, most of that time has been nowhere near web development or JavaScript. That's, that's a fairly recent thing. I sort of Probably about 10 years ago, I really started the process of sidestepping into, into working with JavaScript from what I was doing. And only in the last two years have I really been able to kind of cut loose every other language I was in, sort of framework I was working with and really go full on JavaScript and, and more so TypeScript now. But believe it or not, I started my career, I more or less started my career working in, in game development. So I had 10 years working in game development before I had a bit of a stint in the financial industry. And then I came back to game development, contracting for about a year. At that point, I went into serious games. So this is about getting up to about 10 years ago now when I came back from overseas to Australia. And I started working uh, at a company doing simulations, training products, virtual reality. So I'd sort of gone from C++ and and a little bit of C Sharp and a little bit of Python to at this point, mostly working in C Sharp using the Unity game engine. But this is where I kind of started to step in, sidestep, I would say, into, into web development. I was leading a team at this company and we were all, the whole team was C-sharp programmers working with Unity. You know, we're, we're 3D graphics guys. So it, it was a pretty different situation for me to kind of move into. But we had a need and, you know, the need was to build UI for the company that was uh, web-based. Um, so that involved getting into JavaScript. And uh, I... I, for some reason, JavaScript just really, just really worked for me. I think, you know, I think languages, programming languages, can be very personal, and I, I think to really take something on board and and, and go deep with it, um, you, you need to develop like a or, or pick a language basically that speaks to you on a personal level. And I don't know why, but for me, that that was JavaScript. After so long, you know, working with a bunch of other languages, um, uh, I think. I think that, you know, listening to, to what you're talking about, um, it's kind of, you know, amusing for me because I see a lot of parallels between uh, your career and my own. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, like you, I'm, I'm an old timer. I'm an even older timer than you are. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, my first uh, job, uh, professional gig, I think, was around 94 uh i had some jobs before that but uh like but they were more uh, uh you know occasional or i there was also my military service in, in, in israel but um i also like you i actually started in game development so my first uh-huh. first professional job was also in game development but it's it was long ago and it was before unity and by the way when we talk about unity we're talking about the unity 3d engine that yeah, that's uh, right. like uh 
a world rendering engine that's used in a lot of uh, game uh, games and game related mm. applications just to you know in case some of our listeners may not be familiar with it mm. um and like you i started with with uh, c++ and uh, c and uh, languages like that and only found my way into javascript a bit later though again earlier than you did uh but mm. i totally uh, what you're ten, uh, saying about a particular programming language uh, clicking with you uh, really resonates with me. Uh, mm. I think that um, uh, as developers, the, the tools, we, we are fortunate to have a wide variety of tools that we can choose mm. from and career paths that we can go down. I think, I think the tools yeah. in the e- ecosystem has been really important because, I mean, that it was really stagnant in, in the games industry. Um, I mean, I started working with Unity in, in about 2012. Before that, you know, any, any game job I worked for in the you know any job in the games industry, we'd, we'd basically build our own game engine. <laughs> like, like it, it was like until I started working with Unity, I hadn't really sort of gotten gotten hands on with a game engine that someone else had built. Um, but as I kind of moved into JavaScript, you know, I, I just found that there was this huge community. That, I mean, the games industry has been sort of very insular, like like uh, they don't they don't share a lot of like open source work. At least you know in my experience, that's what I that's what I thought. Um, but when I got into the JavaScript community, there's all these open source projects everywhere. The whole community is contributing to it, and it just it was just amazing how much you know. It, it's a little bit overwhelming, I guess, when you when you first start learning JavaScript, just the sheer amount of you know tools and frameworks and APIs and all this stuff that you've got to you think you've got to get your head around. You don't really. I mean, that's that's my advice to new, to new devs is you don't really. There's a lot of stuff that you just don't need to know. But you know, I just I love that. I, I love having that choice. Um, you know, trying a few different frameworks, picking one that that sort of appeals to you personally. Um, you know, that's just one of the things that I lo- that really got me into JavaScript. Again, I totally agree. I think that the, the, one of the things that uh, has really driven the success of the web and development around that platform has been the fact that the web was essentially op- an open source platform from the get-go and by design. Uh, mm. When you, uh, you know, you can minify and bundle and package and uglify your JavaScript and even the HTML and CSS, but at the end of the day, you're delivering source code down to the endpoint devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, the browser downloads at the end of the day, it's HTML, CSS, and, mm. and JavaScript. And even when it's minified, it's still, you know, readable if you really put your mind to it. And a lot of people just, you know, take that into, uh, just assume that. Uh, a lot, if you talk to a lot of the older timers in, in the web community, uh, they'll tell you that they learned most of the stuff that they originally knew just by doing a view source and mm. uh, and looking at the raw HTML and CSS and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And even though I think that's less the case today, certainly if you're building a, a large web application using React or Angular or whatever, it's it's a lot more difficult to just browse the source code but I think that the open source mentality has kind of permeated the, this uh, particular segment of, of the software industry and exists mm-hmm. here to this day. And that's one of the reasons I think that we're seeing so many open source projects being used mm-hmm. and so much sharing of code, which like you, I find to be very exciting and, and a very positive thing. Um, 
So you said that uh, JavaScript kind of clicked for you when you got into it. Can you elaborate what, why you think that is? Yeah, well, I, we, we were using it firstly because the Unity game engine didn't have a good way to make UIs. But we did. there was this product. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it allowed you to integrate a web UI into Unity to be rendered on top of it. So we were like, you know, great. You can do pretty much anything with HTML and CSS. We can make this thing look amazing. We had an artist on board who uh, had learned a bit of um, CSS and HTML at, at his um, college or university, and he, he really got stuck into it and started making some beautiful UIs. So we, we really went full on for this approach for a couple of years there at least before Unity came up with a, with a better way of, you know, making UIs in C Sharp. But I think, you know, by the end of that process, you know, myself at least, you know, like I, I was pretty hooked on JavaScript um, because at that stage we'd started using it for our backend, for uh, Node.js. Um, we started uh, running servers on Azure to support, you know, uh, customers of the company. Um, we were making proper web pages that were like telemetry dashboards to show, you know, information and analytics about what was happening in some of our simulations and our, our, our uh, training courses that we had running. Uh, and then even to the point where like, I was using Ionic to to build some really, you know, really quite simple mobile applications that were kind of like, you know, tests or quizzes or or surveys that people would do after doing their training. And of course, it wasn't just me doing this. I had I had a team around me at the time as well. Uh, and um, also, I was I was very motivated. Um, and th this is the whole kind of how I got into the the data wrangling with JavaScript. I I was looking to trade the stock market, and and up until that point, I'd been using Python and um, Pandas to do some data analysis, uh, Jupyter Notebook, of course. Uh, but because I'd been getting into uh, to JavaScript and my ambition was to basically, you know, to build a trading bot and to host it in the cloud somewhere and just have it be automatic and, and do its thing. And I wanted to do that with Node.js. Like I tried a few different ways of making servers, a few different languages for making servers in the past. And, you know, Node.js is what is what, like I said, what clicked for me. Um, so I, I went on this long, quite, quite a long road then of actually learning how to do stuff with data and, and building my own tool set as well to, to work with data in JavaScript. <clears throat> now, working with data had been something that I had done, like going back to the beginning of my career. Of course, when, you, when you're working on a game, as you would know, it, it's very, it's very data-driven. A game is just, you know, probably a very small amount of code compared to the amount of data you've got, like 3D assets, you've got your textures, you've got your level data, you've got data for all the entities, you know, you've got data about what the player's doing, what they've done. It's just, so so working with data and, you know, doing things like working on the performance of the game, um, looking for memory legs, that all involved collecting and analysing data. So I, you know, for me, I, I didn't need, I didn't really feel like I needed Python to do that, which is the, you know, it's, it's the go-to language normally for, for working with data. But I'd always done this in, you know, C++, C Sharp. I, I, eventually, I started doing it in Python, whatever I had to hand. But once I, once I got hooked by JavaScript, I really wanted to work with data in JavaScript. Um, and once I figured out how to do that, that's when, you know, I had this kind of burning desire to kind of tell the world or tell, tell all the JavaScript programmers at least, you know, hey, you, you can do this. You don't, you don't necessarily need Python. There's so much you can do already in JavaScript. So I gather you that, like you said, you got so excited about it and you discovered that it worked so well for you and then you ultimately wrote a book about it, I think. Yeah, that's right. 
Uh, it's uh, the title of the book is uh, Data Wrangling with, with JavaScript. Uh, we'll post mm-hmm. uh, a link to it. Uh, it's it's published by Manning. Yeah. Um, can, um, well then, what can you say about uh, data <laughs> data wrangling with JavaScript? Well, it, it's, the book is a comprehensive guide on all different aspects of working with data. Uh, there's, there's, you know, work, how do you work with large data sets? How do you work with databases from JavaScript? Um, there's a couple of chapters on visualization, uh, including uh, a simple one using C3, a more advanced one using D3, um, working with live data pipelines in JavaScript, um, doing doing um, server-side visualization for rendering charts in the server, rendering reports in the server, that kind of thing. You know, this is this is all stuff that that's you know just came from my experience, um, literally, of of the work I was doing all throughout my career, really, and and that I that I then had to figure out how to do in JavaScript. Uh, working with large, huge data files. There's a chapter on uh, data analysis and statistics, um, exploratory um, coding to explore your data and figure out what you've got, working with unusual data formats. There's there's a fair bit in this book. Um, I, I think I added, uh, as, as I was writing the book, I came up with an extra two chapters and and there was more. I had like a, ideas for about four more chapters, but I, I kind of had to stop somewhere. Um, in, in a way, Manning, Manning changed the course of my career because as I was leaving uh, my last full-time job in 2017, I, you know, and, and I'd been talking to Manning, I'd, uh, uh, I'd been doing some technical reviews for Manning and that's how I kind of uh, met them. And I had two, two, two pitches I was going to give them. One was how to build complex applications and serious games in Unity. And the other one was data wrangling with JavaScript. And um, I gave them a pitch for both books and they accepted data wrangling with JavaScript. So that really kind of set my course for the next, uh, the next couple of years, uh, writing that book and, uh, and, and continuing to learn as well, continuing to learn about JavaScript. Um, at that point, I'd never worked in JavaScript full time. Um, it, it was something I did, you know, as well as coding C Sharp and Unity in that job. But at that point there, I was just, I was transitioning basically to, to a whole new world. So at that point there, that was, that was my last full-time job. From 2017 onwards, I've basically been an entrepreneur, an author, and, uh, and I still do contracting to keep the cash flow. And uh, doing a fair bit of um, open source coding as well along the way. Good for you. Um, so uh, before we dive into the whole topic of, of data processing and data management and data storage, I actually do want to ask you another question about your uh, journey into JavaScript. Uh, you came into JavaScript as as you told us as an already experienced developer with experience in several other programming languages. Uh, but my own experience is that despite some, uh, syn- let's call it syntactical similarities, mm-hmm. the semantics of JavaScript is actually often different and yep. sometimes surprisingly different oh, from yeah. a lot of these other programming languages. Like it's it's yep. very tempting to assume that uh, JavaScript is, is like Java <laughs> Where, where you know they have a yep. similarity in the name, uh, yep. but ultimately they're very, very different, and, and they should mm. be used in different ways. Uh, I, I did not really understand the features of JavaScript for, for quite some time. I, I would say I, I kind of knew them, like because I had worked with Lua. Have you heard of Lua? 
Yes, I, I, I had uh, worked with Lua, and that that's in in a lot of ways that's very similar to JavaScript. But uh, it it also has uh, I'm 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 knowledge uh, knowledgeable of Lua. Can't say mm. that I've ever actually made any significant use of it. Uh, certainly not any time recently. Uh, does it mm. also have this sort of a dynamic object structure like JavaScript? Yeah. Has? So. Yeah, dynamic um, objects. I'm just trying to think from memory. Um, it's got first-class functions, very similar to JavaScript. Uh, it's got closures, even though I think back when I was programming Lua, I didn't I didn't know what closures were. Any sort of, I've only really sort of understood closures since I started working with with JavaScript. Um, but but Lua definitely has those as well. Um, it's got I think it's got prototypal inheritance or like some equivalent of that. I know, I know there's no such thing as classes in Lua. So you, you basically you you build your um, classes out of prototypal objects, similar to what you do in JavaScript. Um, so I don't I don't know if there's you know the the guys that originally made Lua, you know whether they had some experience of JavaScript or there was some crossover. Of course, Lua's Lua's an incredibly successful language in in the games industry. Probably not so much now that Unity's a, a, as big as it is, but before Unity. Um, Lua was like like a, a big language to use for scripting um, gameplay logic in games and uh, scripting user interface logic, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, and it's and it's it's a you, you can actually read the code for Lua. It, it's the it's got a really compact, elegant um, C language code base. Um, if you're interested in kind of understanding how a, a language like that works, it's uh, it's a really good place to start looking. Cool. Um, and you mentioned uh, that you discovered closures when you started working with JavaScript. <laughs> Just I, I, I would, I would say I, I fully understood what closures were and were able to put a name to them when I, when I was working in JavaScript. But even even though Lua had that concept, and, and I kind of recognised that concept in Lua I, at the time, I didn't, I didn't really go deep enough on Lua to, to fully appreciate. Uh, what that was, and and also, you know, with, with JavaScript, there's a million and one blogs telling you what closures are, um, and with Lua, you don't get that. Lua's community was was not that big, so you don't get that those kind of educational resources uh, alongside Lua. Uh, by the way, just to say that uh, JavaScript uh, that closures are one of my uh, favorite uh, programming language features. Yep. Uh, any language that doesn't have closures. These days feels kinds of uh, stunted to me. I, I I feel the same way. I don't I don't know how I could. I mean, C sharp was my, my previous favorite language before JavaScript, and uh, JavaScript probably won't be my favorite language forever. But I, I mean, I can't imagine going back to a a language that doesn't support closures. Um, the, and, yeah, the other part on. of the other part of JavaScript that it's it's really hard for other people to get, and I didn't I didn't so much have a problem with it. Is uh, the asynchronous side of things, which uh, which you don't really get in other languages, except you know that they bolted this thing onto C sharp, so it's it's asynchronous now. And I think they might have, I think they might have done the same for for Python. I have no idea where C is at, but um, asynchronous programming, as I I had to do like a sort of a special coverage of that in my first book, Data Wrangling with JavaScript, after my publisher convinced me that it was a hard topic. Now, I don't want to demean anyone. I you know. I, I, I do think that coding, development, and some of these sort of concepts are, are genuinely difficult to learn. I, I've had a bunch of junior developers and interns work for me. You know, I've, I've seen the trouble. Um, the the thing, about, um, thing about coding for me is that 
I mean, I don't, I don't tend to remember how hard it was to learn things. And I think it's just because I get really, really engrossed in it. Like I just, you know, I, I can, I can, I can be learning and I can, I can lose all track of time. And, you know, something, sometimes some things in my career probably have taken years to make sense, <laughs> you know, years on the job before it actually becomes clear, you know, all the way through what, what, what a, what a feature or, a, you know, certain part of a language means. But, you know, I, I don't even notice. It's just like, um, you know, to, when you get totally engrossed in something, you know, you just don't notice that it, it's difficult to learn. Oh, I, I, t- I totally agree. I'm actually having an interesting, uh, let's say, uh, it's interesting times for me about this because uh, my, my eldest son is actually just starting uh, a CS degree. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, he wasn't really into computers and software before he started. He came into it kind of late, you know, software was my mm-hmm. thing in the house and he uh, had his things. And now he's decided he is actually interested in, in software and in programming. Um, so a lot of the concepts that I take for granted are totally new for him. And it's really interesting to mm-hmm. see how challenging it can be to adapt to uh, the, the relevant thought processes. You know, things that are mm. uh, trivial and obvious for me are not so for him. He was very much into math and physics, which you would think it, it does help, but it's still a very different thought process. So I totally agree with what you're saying. And in even like you said yourself, even when transitioning between different programming languages and development environments, the concepts change. I, I, you mm. know, I think I told this story before in, this pod, mm. in some episode of this podcast about uh, a seasoned C++ developer who was also transitioning into JavaScript and web development. And he came up to me and said that he was trying to download uh, some uh, resource from, from the web, you know, make, effectively mm. making an AJAX call. And uh, how does how and was asking me how to block execution until that AJAX call completes, mm. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, because that's what you do in languages yeah. like uh, C or maybe Java. You you block that thread and you have additional threads to process other events that uh, that occur. And with JavaScript, mm. you only have mostly that one thread, and you handle this by coding or by processing things asynchronously. So it was definitely a mental challenge for this developer to transition from blocking multi-threaded environment Mm. over to an asynchronous, primarily single-threaded environment, which is JavaScript. You know, Uh, I love love the single-threaded nature of JavaScript. I I do not miss threads at all. Like, Like I've spent some of the horror years of my career trying to trying to debug issues in threads in, in C++ code that can take weeks or, or months to really kind of nail the cause of, you know, what other thread is, is corrupting your memory. And, like, it's not obvious. It, it takes a lot of a lot of work, really, to kind of, to kind of get through some of those issues with threads. And so I, I'm really happy that, for one, that JavaScript is single-threaded. It's never held me back. I mean, I've, I've built this complicated application, um, DataForge Notebook, that has multiple processes, including, like, hidden electron windows for doing background processing. It's a bit of rigmarole to get that set up, but, you know, you, you don't have this worry about multi-threaded corruption ever. And what was the other thing? Yeah, so I, I've built my own. I do algorithmic trading on the Australian stock market. And I built my own trading algorithmic trading system. It runs on my desktop PC that has 16 cores. And it's it's a Node.js program. It basically when it starts up, 
it uh, it forks itself into into as many processes as I want to run simultaneously, and so I can get a lot of data processing throughput in that system because of that, and uh, and I never have to worry about these multi-threaded issues that had been the pain of my life really before before moving to JavaScript. Uh, and just a question: Isn't it kind of scary to implement your own algorithmic trading? application i mean if you have a bug you can lose a lot of money very quickly yeah. no yeah there, there are checks and balances in place so i mean that my main system I, I don't have an api from the broker that i can use anyway so for a while i was using doing like screen scraping and and browser automation to get my trades in but that that hit some problems that meant i couldn't do that anymore so now what I, now what i do is I, i run my code on the weekend and it gives me a list of trades to place during the week And so I can I can get into the market first thing morning, place those trades manually, uh, and and I use I I used to use conditional orders to get in, which meant I could I could place trades on the weekend. But again, various problems with those, you know, through experience means I don't want to use them anymore. So I place my trades manually, provided everything is looking okay on the Monday morning, and then I use automatic stop losses and profit targets to get out of the market. So it's it's as hands off as it can be, but there's no. I mean, the problem with trading is you get you get emotional about it, and you and you you can be irrational about it. So, I wanted to eliminate completely eliminate that and and work off a strategy that had been back tested, and you know analytically shown that you know that there was a, a mathematical edge that you know if you just run it long enough, it's uh, it, it's gonna you know it's gonna give you slow, steady profits. This has been a bad year with with COVID in the stock market, so don't ask, ask me about this year. But beside that, it, it, over the last few years, it's gone really well. Well, you still have a shirt on your back, so I guess yeah. it's, it's, oh, it's, it's still funny, okay. Funnily enough, the shirt that I'm wearing on my back at the moment was sent to be my, by Manning. They sent me four four shirts at the beginning of the year, so that's kept me going all year. <laughs> well, you know how they say. I remember seeing uh, this uh, comic strip, comic strip on that said mm-hmm. uh, where this guy is talking to a programmer and says that I see by your shirt that you just came back from a conference, uh, and he says yes. You know, this was a strip from before COVID. Uh, yeah. So he uh, goes, I, I, I don't think you actually buy shirts, do you? You just go to conferences. And he <laughs> says, well, I try to time my conferences so that I don't even have to do the washing. Um, <laughs> well, you can't do that this year, can you? Yeah, no, not this year. This year, I, I'll tell fun. you what. I I really miss the uh, the meetup community in Brisbane. I mean, we do some online meetups still, but it's just not the same. <laughs> Oh, I definitely agree. Uh, I participated in something like uh, two or three online conferences uh, this year. I actually spoke at them, but it's mm-hmm. definitely not the same. My my favorite thing about conferences is is the is the face to face is is mm. the uh, meeting up in the hallways and meeting new people and discussing stuff and and that's just not there with online con. Well, you know they try, but it's not the same. Mm. So I, I definitely agree with you. It's it's one of the things that I miss the most. That and just traveling around, which I also enjoy. Yeah, uh, I, I I sometimes think that uh, Google Maps is trolling me whenever they send me <laughs> that uh, monthly update of this is where you were, and it's just <laughs> this red dot on my house. And uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you mentioned this application, this data processing application that you've written called uh, DataForge. Can you elaborate on that? Well, well, there's two things really, um, and they're, and they're kind of they're kind of related, but also kind of not related. So, I'll give you a link at the end. But the um, da- DataForge actually is my open source library for doing. Da- yeah, that's it. That's the one. That's for doing data wrangling uh, in JavaScript. So it, it's kind of 
from my early days, uh, this is version two now, so it's a it's a few years old, but the version one of this came from my real entry early days into JavaScript. So there's some things in there that aren't, aren't quite like they should be really following JavaScript conventions, but this was uh, inspired by Pandas, like my experience using Pandas and in Python and wanting to do those kind of things in JavaScript, like working really fluidly with, with, with time series data and being able to do, you know, operations on it and, and stitching together different data sets and stuff like that. And it's also inspired by LinQ or Language Integrated, integrated Query that, that was popular yeah. in the C-sharp world that I used to love when I was working with C-sharp. And so I wanted to build something that was a bit like that in JavaScript. I, I'm still I'm still very happy with it. There's a couple of things that, like a couple of C-sharp-isms in there that I would probably change to be JavaScript-isms now if I, if I didn't want to break things. And then what the, the natural thing that came after that was that I, you know, I really, I really love the concept of Jupyter Notebook, but I really wanted that for JavaScript. And I, I did try their, their JavaScript add-on, I can't remember what it was called, but that was really painful to set up and it just didn't work very well. It didn't, it didn't fit very nicely and it didn't have the same feel of, of working with, with Python in, in, in Jupyter Notebook. And, and I had this dream for years to, to basically remake Jupyter Notebook for JavaScript. And over the years, I'd, I'd done a couple of, couple of prototypes. And then, and then I figured out how to use Electron. And I, I did my last proto, prototype that I did, must be about two and a half years ago now, that actually turned into the, the proper version of DataForge Notebook. And I used that also the, at the same time to further my business skills. So I went about it as if it was going to be my business, you know, rather than an open source project and I got I got I spread the word and I got people to sign up for the early version of it and stuff like that so I knew that people were interested in it before I started putting major amounts of effort into it but so, so, so data if I can interrupt you for a second just to clarify mm -hmm. so data forge notebook is 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 it what exactly is it a library is it an application so, how, how do you actually use it what is it exactly so um, if anyone who's listening wants to have a look, they can go to dataforgenotebook.com and they can see a video there that shows an overview. But if you know what Jupyter Notebook is, it's, it's basically Jupyter Notebook for JavaScript and TypeScript. So you, it's, it's a live coding environment. You type a bit of code, you can get a visualization. You type a bit more code, you get another live visualization. So it's a very visual way of, of coding and prototyping and doing data analysis. So originally it was it was intended to be used with DataForge and that's why it was called DataForge Notebook. But pretty early on, I realized that, you know, it was going to be a separate useful thing, you know, just for any JavaScript coder. And so I basically, I, I changed it so that DataForge Notebook wasn't like embedded in it. And DataForge Notebook, it, it's like you're coding Node.js. So it's, it's got an embedded portable Node.js under the hood that evaluates your code. And, it, and it's just got a lot of convenient stuff there, like, you know, you, you install it and it's ready to go. And then you, if, you type, if you type in your NPM imports, it automatically installs them for you so you can just start using them. And it's just a very, very convenient way to, to try out ideas in JavaScript, you know, start off a new project, prototype code, or if you're having problems in, in an existing JavaScript application, you can easily transport or transplant some other code over to DataForge Notebook to, to, to debug it and visualize it and, and see what's going wrong there. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is 
awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash Raygun. So if I understand correctly <laughs> what you're explaining, it's, it's sort of like an enhanced node JS type environment where I actually type commands at the at the prompt. But in addition to the built-in node commands, I also have operations to draw graphs and process various file formats and stuff like that, and additional libraries that are already preloaded, as it were. It's just like you're editing, editing a code file, a JavaScript code file that's designed to run under Node.js. But yeah, you can get these like live visualizations for, for time series data, Geographic data, it supports maps. It's got, it can render HTML. It can just render, you know, basic text data. It can render JSON data. It can visualize JavaScript objects. It's got a, it's got a bunch of visualizations built in. They're kind of hard coded into it. One thing I really want to do for version two is to really kind of refactor that so that the, the visualization system is plugin based so that you could potentially put any charting library in there, you know, any, any graphing library or anything like maybe having kind of user submitted components, uh, plugins that can be installed into it. And all the code that you write, even the visualizations, which can be just compiled out, all the code that you write in Dataforge Notebook can just be exported to run under Node.js. So one thing I didn't like about Jupyter Notebook, and that turns out to be a huge problem in, in the industry for anyone working with Jupyter Notebook, is that once you put code in a notebook, it's very hard to op- to get that code to work outside of the notebook. And, and I've heard all sorts of tales about how, you know, companies and, and people productionize their Jupyter Notebooks, you know, to get to get these notebooks running in production. And my aim for Dataforge Notebook was for you to be able to prototype, visual, visually prototype code, you know, for, for me, that's data analysis and transformations and visualizations, but then be able to export that to runnable, a runnable Node.js project so that your, your code kind of isn't trapped in that notebook format. It was always, it was always going to be a stepping stone for me, like, and, and that's why I couldn't, I couldn't go on using Jupyter Notebook because you can't say you can't prototype a stock trading strategy in Jupyter Notebook. Well, you can. I mean, you can do that part of it. But then what do you do with it? Like, you, you can't export your code and have it run in the microservice or something like that. It, it's very difficult to do that with Jupyter Notebook. And, and I really didn't want the notebook to be the, the end of the picture because I'm like, I'm a working developer, like a working production developer. I don't, you know, I don't spend all my time in these notebooks. At the end of the day, I need to get the code out and I need to get it into production. So that, that was one of the, the, the big motivations for me, Dataforge Notebook being, you know, something that I always wanted to kind of use myself. And, and so it's, for me, it's a big, big passion project, but I'm also selling it and I'm giving away, I'm giving away a free version of it now as well. So it's up there for everyone to try. I'm personally not familiar with Jupyter Notebook, but I mm-hmm. am, or I was at least familiar with the MATLAB environment, if you've heard about it or ever tried it and it sounds kind of similar to that 
Mm. That it's in type of a CLI type environment where you were able to. It had its own programming language, by the way, the MATLAB mm. programming language. But again, you had the ability to read various uh, file formats. You had a lot of built-in data processing functions and graphing functions. And and it does seem to me that the big differentiator in the, the DataForge notebook that you created is indeed this ability to export the JavaScript code that you create in a way that indeed can run anywhere because, uh, again, with MATLAB, which again is the example that I'm familiar with, but based on your description, mm. also with Jupyter Notebook, you're kind of locked into that development environment. If, if you want to give your code to, for somebody else to run or if you yourself want to run it on the cloud, it becomes really challenging because mm. essentially you would have to bundle and somehow provide that entire development environment and it's not really intended to be automated in that way. So, and, and JavaScript definitely has this big advantage that it can literally run anywhere. So Yeah, I mean, that, that, that really goes to the core of why I love JavaScript as well, is that you can use it anywhere. It's not, you know, it's not trapped anywhere. It's, it's you know, it, it broke out of the front end. What, when was Node? Node came out about 10 years ago or something. It JavaScript broke away from the front end 10 years ago and it hasn't stopped like it's 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 everywhere now and you can do everything with it and that's, that's why i love it and, that, and that's why i needed to be able to kind of do these things with it that traditionally you would you would go to python to do that's why i just had to be able to do this in javascript i just i just had to help the community you know open it up for that kind of thing and, and when, I, when I first started on this mission to, to be able to work with, with data in JavaScript, there wasn't much around, like, in, in terms of tools or, or software, but it, it has really opened up, like, like people are starting to take it seriously in JavaScript. And we're, we're a huge community. And if we want to, if we want to make JavaScript overtake Python for, for data analysis, like, we can literally do that just because there's so many of us that can potentially work on this sort of stuff. You know, it's, it's really up to the community where it goes. It's mostly about implementing existing algorithms and stuff like that, correct? And adding support for additional data structures and data formats. Well, there's, there's two things that uh, Python has got going through it. And, and what, one is its community of data scientists. That's great. But who, who do they turn to when they want to visualize the data? You know, they... they they either have to get it into JavaScript themselves or they have to come to the web developers. So, you know, we're at the end of their pipeline, <laughs> no matter whether they like that or not. But the other thing that Python's got going for it is it's got these, these old, quite quite clunky APIs like, like Pandas that I don't think they're a good experience for a developer to use, but they do everything that you need to do. Everyone knows how to use them. And, and they're all backed by native code. So that makes them, them pretty fast. There's no reason why we, we couldn't do all that in JavaScript, of course. We can make native code plugins to Node.js. We could, we could do that easily if we, if we wanted to, if we had the will, if we had the need. So there's no reason why we can't do all of that in JavaScript. It's just that Python has got this ecosystem and this legacy and this history that, that's sort of pushing it forward. And, and it's especially, for me, it's especially prevalent in the machine learning world. So I've been dabbling in, in machine learning for a few years now, and mostly I have to go to Python to do that still. I, I am reading this awesome book from Manning that's deep, called Deep Learning with JavaScript. So I do hope to move some of my, my pipeline. And, and it's all about training models. So you can you can use TensorFlow now in JavaScript. You can you, you can get TensorFlow running in, in Node.js. You know, we, we use that at my, my startup, Sortal. That's, that's not a big deal. It's it's the training of the models and and all the stuff that goes around that that still seems where where Python is the dominant king, 
And but so I, I've, some of the stuff that I'm reading in this book, uh, deep learning with JavaScript, is is really changing my mind on that. And uh, and I, I'm trying. Yeah, it's hard to get time, but I'm I'm trying to work through that book and, and move some of my pipeline over to JavaScript. It might be interesting for you, but Charlie Gerard. I don't know if you've you've heard about her. She actually lived in in Australia for a while. I think mm-hmm. uh, she just released a book about using TensorFlow JS. So that might cool. be interesting for you. Yeah, um, definitely look that one up. But going back to to what you were you were talking about, so you're saying that some of the challenges is that uh, because the uh, particularly the data scientists are mostly working in in Python, uh, there's a lot of existing know-how and and libraries and code examples within the Python community around machine learning and around data processing in general that don't yet exist uh, for JavaScript, but there's no reason that they could not exist for JavaScript. It's just a matter of time and effort, I guess, correct? Yeah, and it's whether the community wants to go in that direction. I mean, because there's no reason we have to. I mean, you know, Python as a language doesn't really agree with me. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll use it when I have to, but it's a perfectly usable, workable language, you know, and and it's in a it's in a good position. So I don't I don't think it's a, it's a case that we necessarily have to kind of try and rival them or try and try and better the python community it's not it's not about that it, it's really about like you know if, if you, you don't have to have someone tell you that you need to go to python to do that stuff like that that's just what i'm saying is that you, if you're already working in javascript you can do a lot of that already in javascript and you don't have to leave it and the situation is already improving and people like myself and there's a lot of other people out there who are, who are working on these problems are making it easier for the community basically to to be able to do data science data analysis in in javascript and and hopefully the situation is improving with um, machine learning in javascript as well you're actually not the first person who's uh, who i've talked with about this topic in the context of javascript uh, so it, de- it definitely seems like it's moving forward and mm. i i do think that for example the advantage of being able to do machine learning from within the browser either using something like tensorflow js or even I think you know browsers will be are and will be gaining more machine learning capabilities so that you can actually run some of this stuff client side. I think this is really interesting and this is definitely where JavaScript has an advantage over most any other programming language, just its integration with the browser. So I think this is going to be really, really interesting. You also mentioned that you're really getting into TypeScript now. So it's interesting that after you fell in love with with JavaScript, you're now feeling an inclination to move. Well, I won't say move away from from JavaScript to TypeScript because at the end of the day, TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript. But you are sort of transitioning your your development environment. Uh, can you tell most, us about most, that? Yeah, I think most of my development is in TypeScript now. I've probably still got. A handful of really old microservices that I'm looking after that are in JavaScript. I've got one old web web page that's just uh, in in JavaScript. But most most of my code from the last two years has been moved to TypeScript already. I'm really happy with TypeScript. Um, I, when I first started with JavaScript, I, I really fell in love with kind of like the dynamic nature of it, the, the freedom of just writing code and not having to compile it. And I had come from this background where you have to compile your code and, and it's all statically type checked. And, and I was a big fan of that. You know, back then I was a big fan of that as well. But with JavaScript, after I kind of 
after I kind of got it with JavaScript, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm free. You know, like I love this. Isn't it? It's just great. And then, of course, you know, you, you work in JavaScript for a couple of years. And for, for me, it was only part time that I was working with JavaScript. But you, you work with it and you realize that there's a lot of problems with that. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to refactor without breaking it. You're, you're mistyping field names and not discovering it until runtime and stuff like that. And then you, then you start to think, yeah, I need, I need to get a bit of static typing back. And TypeScript was great for me because I'd, I'd had this background in C Sharp, which is, you know, feels very much akin to, to TypeScript. So yeah, they're you know, both were, they both were created by the same person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Andres, Andres Hellsberg, I think his name is yeah. pronounced. Yeah, and so... At Microsoft. C Sharp was, was my favorite language before JavaScript. So, you know, TypeScript naturally sort of has taken that, that, that place. But the thing I love about it is, well, that they've, they've built TypeScript so well, like that you can basically just disable wherever and whenever you want. So you've, you've got the freedom of JavaScript where you want it. And then you've got the, you know, the type safety of TypeScript and the, and the semantic checking on top of that whenever you need it, when, whenever you feel like you need that extra helping hand in your coding to keep, you know, to keep it safe and error free. The other thing I really loved about JavaScript, of course, after, after years of working with C++ and C Sharp, where you had to jump through a lot of hoops to get data serialized and you had to write up classes and you had to do all these annotations on all your you know, fields and stuff to kind of load them from, you, from your data. With, with JavaScript, it was just kind of automatic. Like, like you kind of, the function to parse JSON is just built into the library, into the language, basically. And, and what, it, what is JSON, but just basically a cut down version of JavaScript data. So like, I, that, that's one of the reasons why I kind of took to, to working with data in JavaScript, actually, I think, is because of that, just that, that seamlessness of, of getting data in and out of the language just was just incredible. And, and, and I had this by, this, by this time, I had this deep hatred for XML as well. So I, um, I, I really took to JSON. Yeah, I can appreciate that. It's interesting, really. I mean, obviously, the fact that JavaScript is so closely associated with the web and the built-in browser support, native browser support, has always obviously been instrumental to the success of this language. But I think that the association with JSON, the fact that, like you said, what was originally effectively JavaScript's own build, a cut-down or stripped-down version of JavaScript's own way to represent literal objects and arrays and whatnot has effectively become a data interchange format that's almost ubiquitous mm -hmm. now. Well, you know, we now have, uh, what's it called? There are other formats as well now, uh, but JSON is still prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's definitely been instrumental to, to the success of, uh, of JavaScript. Uh, mm. it, it's just so easy to, like you said, it's just so easy to work with it and it maps so well mm. to the, the I, way that JavaScript internally represents data. I feel like even even though some things in JavaScript are hard to learn, like closures and, and asynchronous programming, I think generally JavaScript probably, you know, drops a lot of barriers. Like like there's less, I feel like there's less barriers to entry, to getting stuff in JavaScript than, you know, there can be in other languages. I, it's just, for me, for me, JavaScript's uh, like a really practical language and since i've basically been doing the entrepreneur thing and you know and building various M mvps and, and product prototypes you know javascript because it you can do javascript basically full stack front end back end mobile like i can cover everything i can cover everything with javascript to a reasonable degree and uh, and and it basically just takes me through everything another thing i love i love about javascript which i you know i probably tried to do in older kind of more static languages, but never really succeeded, 
is the ability to do live code reload. So I just, I just, I can't get over that. It feels like a superpower to me. Like you, you basically, you, you either you're doing unit testing, uh, test-driven development. You've got you know Jest on watch so that you can you can type code and have your tests automatically rerun. In fact, this is what I'm going to be live streaming. I'm 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 live streaming on Twitch at the end of this week, and I'm going to be showing how to do this with uh, live reload, automated testing with Jest. But just also things like that. I, I use the Webpack Dev Server a lot, running it in kind of the hot reload mode. So you can tw- you can fiddle with your with your styling. You can play with HTML and JavaScript. And you know, it just it doesn't it just it's just there instantly. And you know, I, I come from a background where you know, in the old days, you know, we'd be working on the PlayStation Two or the N- Nintendo Wii or something like that, and you'd have to compile, and it, it could take like you know, twenty to thirty minutes on a on a big game, and then you'd have to like you know, push it down to the device to run it and start it up, and like. In hindsight, now that I'm working with JavaScript, you know, even even just working on traditional native mobile apps now, it just seems so slow and awkward and clunky compared to you know what you get pretty much out of the box with you know web development and you know development under Node.js and you know testing with Jest and Mocker and frameworks like that. I totally agree. We are starting to run towards the end of the show, but before we mm. before we move over to picks, I know that you have another book out. I think also on Manning about microservices. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, so uh, bootstrapping microservices with uh, Docker, Terraform, and Kubernetes. That's that's my latest book. I'm, I'm literally going through the final revisions now, but it, it's been available for about a year on early access. But in, in the next couple of months, it should actually be printed which is just going to be magnificent feeling to hold my next book in my hand but it's a practical and project-based guide to building microservices now it's really focused on the the high level tools like docker and and you know how to how to get it running production on kubernetes and how we use terraform to implement uh, infrastructure as code but all the way through because you know no no js is what i use in my production work I, I use Node.js and JavaScript for example microservices throughout the book. So it's, it's got a JavaScript theme running all the way through it. Although I do, you know, I do try to explain to people that you're using Docker, so you, the, the tech stack to a, to a large extent doesn't matter. But it's a very practical practical book, and I want to show you kind of how how to code these things and how to put them together. So it takes you all the way through from absolute basics to having a fairly non-trivial application running in production on the Kubernetes cluster. But it's just starting with absolute basics like, you know, how do you build one microservice? And then, you know, how do you how do you publish that? How do you build out a doc to a Docker image and publish that? And then how do you use Docker Compose to simulate a multi-microservice application on your local development PC? And then, you know, how do you work with databases and microservices using RabbitMQ for messaging between microservices? And then using Terraform, towards the end of the book, using Terraform to build your Kubernetes cluster, using Terraform to deploy microservices, and putting all this on automatic by having a continuous delivery pipeline in your hosted, basically next to your code repository. So you're basically you know, pushing code changes to get them into production. And then rounding out the book with some you know, tips on how to take it further. And, and, the, and the whole idea here is that you're, you've been working with microservices so that you've got pathways to, to future scalability. So there's tips there on how you can change the number of nodes in your Kubernetes cluster just through code, just through using Terraform, and, uh, and how you can change, how you can make replicas of your microservices within your cluster, you know, for fault tolerance and performance and things like that. Uh, but 
this is like the last year and a half of my life, basically uh, writing this book, and and it you know it builds on it builds on my experience you know over the last twenty years, but but specifically in the last three years when I've been doing contracting around JavaScript microservices, I've built a few of my own products on JavaScript micro microservices, and and there was no practical book on you know how to build a microservices application. There's a bunch of books that that I the way I kind of look at it, they're on microservices theory, which might which might be okay if you're an experienced developer, you know, wanting to kind of sidestep into microservices, but which is basically where I was at three years ago. And but you know, the, the real practical book that kind of was quite opinionated and was held your hand through the whole process didn't exist. So that's why I wrote this book. You know, I felt like there was uh, like a niche to fill here where I could I could share my knowledge and share my recipe with the world. And and it's very practical, very very practical, straightforward guidance all the way through. That sounds really 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 good, and I definitely agree that providing practical information about uh, microservices, especially in this day and age, is very pertinent and very very useful. So thank you for that. And with that, I will push us to picks. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Since it's only the two of us, uh, I'll start, and then I'll let you, hopefully you also have some picks to share with, uh, with our listeners. So I actually have just one pick this time. I have not written a book yet. Maybe I will someday, but I have written a couple of blog posts. Again, not as often as I would like, but I just released the, the latest one yesterday, a day ahead of this recording. It will be probably a month or two by the time uh, this episode actually comes out. It's about JavaScript. It's actually me rethinking the use of the JavaScript pipeline operator. For those of you who are not mm. familiar with it, uh, the pipeline operator is uh, a proposal. It's a stage two, I think, proposal, or maybe even just a stage one. I need to check again. But it's it's definitely not yet part of the standard. There are, in fact, two competing proposals about how to implement it, which is also holding it back. Despite this fact, I actually used the pipeline operator in my in in past yeah it's it's stage one. I actually used the pipeline operator in in two previous blog posts simply because it makes writing sequence of functions in a functional type programming style a much cleaner and more readable. And uh, consequently, uh, I was developing showing how I'm developing a library for synchronous uh, synchronous and asynchronous processing of uh, of data flowing through effectively a pipeline. And the mm -hmm. pipeline operator was really, really useful in that context. But uh, so I got a lot of positive feedback about those blog posts, but a lot of, well, not a lot, but some really negative feedback about the use of the pipeline operator. Some people just didn't like the syntax. It's definitely different. Mm -hmm. And even both the syntax and semantics are kind of mm -hmm. different than what you're used to in JavaScript. So some people are really wary about adding something like that into the language. Yeah. And then uh, I got an interesting feedback from uh, Kyle Simpson, Getify, a known friend of, of this podcast and uh, JavaScript guru extraordinaire, uh, who actually gave me a tip about how you might implement something like the pipeline operator without mm -hmm. needing to actually extend the language. And I tried it out, played with it, extended it a bit. 
and came out with this blog post. So now I've actually moved from uh, wanting to have the pipeline operator in the language to a position mm. where I think that it's actually not needed and that you don't actually need to add it into the language. And if you're interested in you know, this entire evolution and thought process, well, then I'll be really happy if you read my blog post about it. That's really, that, really mm. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd appreciate uh, your feedback as well. Yeah, I'd, love, uh, I'd like to have a look at that. Yeah, so uh, obviously it will be linked in the show notes for this podcast. And that would be my pick for today. Do you have any picks for us? Yeah, but uh, just what you were just talking about, did you use uh, like a Babel plugin to implement that? No. Uh, well, in the pipeline operator, yes, it required a Babel plugin because, mm. uh, as I said, it's not yet supported uh, by mm. any browser or other uh, JavaScript uh, runtime environment. JavaScript mm. runtime environment, like let's say the V8 that's used in, in, in Node and in Chrome or Chromium-based uh, uh, browsers, they do occasionally provide early access to stage four or even occasionally stage three features. Uh, mm. uh, these are essentially proposals that have not yet been released as part of the standard, but just, you know, they're on their way. They're almost here. You know, stage four, it means that it'll be part of the next release. It's, it's mm. done. But this is, like I said, is just stage one. So uh, it's, which means that it's highly likely to change. And if you actually made it part of something like V8, you would create a potentially really big problem because people would start using it. And then you will kind of be forcing the committee's hand, the TC39. You know, they won't be able to change it because it's, it's already out in the field. So mm. it's actually discouraged for uh, uh, browser makers are discouraged from implementing support for for features that are stage one or even stage two but they do create Babel plugins for it so that people can actually play with it and provide uh, feedback about it and the committee actually looks at that feedback when they try to to choose what to add or or not mm. to add to the language and the code pen Babel plugin actually supported uh, the pipeline operator mm. uh, so uh, when I in the previous blog post, I was actually using that. Now, in the latest one where I show how you don't actually need it, I've just removed the need for the Babel plugin because it's just straight on JavaScript and there's no need to extend it in any way. Mm -hmm. no, that's really cool. Yeah, there's probably just two things I'd like to mention. One is that just for myself, really, as a side project and because it's useful to me, I've been developing uh, a, can a Trello-style Kanban board extension for Visual Studio Code. But I'm also using this as an excuse to, to get into some live streaming. So I'll, I'll give you a link to my um, my Twitch feed that you can put up in the show notes. Uh, but if people want to learn, you know, about TypeScript coding, actually see someone trying to do test-driven development with TypeScript using Jest, and then ultimately building towards this, this Kanban thing, thing we can use basically to edit our Kanban boards within Visual Studio Code, they're back by markdown files. So you have all, all your kind of to-do lists and stuff like that in, in text files, in markdown files, but you can edit them using this nice UI. So I'm going through the process of building that and uh, and I've just I've just started live streaming it and it's it's really fun. So I'll I'll share that link with you in a minute. But I also just wanted to end up with just saying, you know, a few things sort of toward uh, some advice to, to new developers or, or people who are aspiring to get into development. Go for Putting, it. 
writing these books, you know, like has really allowed me to sort of get back into the position of how do, how do I see this from a beginner perspective? And I want to write my books minimal jargon and really, really orientated it to make it easy for people to break in really into areas that they might traditionally have been excluded from. So it really gave me a chance to kind of, you know, basically get back in the beginner shoes and kind of look at it from, from that perspective. And you coming into these books, you have minimal experience. Um, and, and I just try to make it easy to read, but it, it's allowed me yeah, to see that perspective in a, in a way that I, I hadn't been able to see, I guess, for a long time, um, which was an interesting uh, learning experience for me. Um, but, but, my advice for new devs when I when I speak to new developers is basically the the best skill that you can have to to progress as a developer is persistence. Like like if you can if you can keep up a little bit of coding every day, like even if it's just five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, that's the starting point. That that's building a habit of coding, and that's going to ensure that you retain the knowledge of you know the things that you're learning. So it's just practice, practice, practice. You know, build projects. It's all it's all good to do tutorials, watch videos, read blog posts, all that kind of stuff. I you know I, I still especially love reading like full proper books when when I'm trying to get into a new technology or a new language or something like that. But but the real way to to actually getting into it is to just code every day. And if you can throw yourself into it, and if you can be 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 passionate and and always be coding, just never giving up. You know that that daily habit, that daily time adds up, and you'll be an experienced developer in in no time. So I just, uh, yeah, just, just. I, I totally probably... agree. I totally agree. Interestingly, mm. a few episodes back, we had uh, Danny Thompson on the show, who's a person who not only broke his own way into mm. software development, but also helps a lot of other people make their way into this field. And in fact, one of his uh, mantras or one of the, the basic rules that he tells everybody who's trying to enter software development is what he calls his ABC, is always be coding. So I definitely agree with everything that you've said there. Yep. I think uh, I think you know you got to get your hands dirty. That's the only way that you can actually learn. And uh, I think if you if you find yourself really inquisitive and just really into it and loving coding, like like it just makes that that time go really quickly. Like you you just it won't it won't be boring. It won't be hard. You'll just be in the middle of it, and it'll be you know you'll just be immersed in it. So you don't even notice if it's if it's hard or not. That's the that's that's I think that's how you know if you if you're gonna be really successful as a developer if you if you really love doing it you're gonna you're really gonna get on well with it but at the end of the day it's just that persistence just just keep trying keep going and be nice to people show respect i think soft skills have been very underrated in our industry and and are very important because at the end of the day i think with with hard work anyone can acquire technical skills it's just that matter of persistence so if you can do that if you're on the path to doing that then start looking at your soft skills. You know, how do you speak to people? You know, how do you how do you relate to people? Can you put yourself in their shoes? I think I think all that's really important as well. I totally agree. Before we finish, if people want to get in touch with you, what would be the best ways to go about it? Uh, yeah, so the, the best way is probably Twitter. So Ashley Davis 75. I'll give you a link for that as well that you can put up. And uh, my live stream on Manning is is Ashley Davis. Very, very nice. So it was great having you on the show. A lot of super interesting and useful information, I think. And with that, we conclude another episode of JavaScript Jabber. So (laughs) goodbye, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.